Welcome to A Certain Age, a show for women who are unafraid to age out loud. I'm your host, Katie Fogarty. Beauties, buckle up. We have a fabulous show. We're being joined today by a guest who has worn so many hats over her career in life, she could open her own hat store. Natalie Nixon is a creativity strategist and a top 50 global keynote speaker. She is a PhD and academic, the author of the award-winning book, The Creativity Leap, Unleash Curiosity, Improvisation, and Intuition at Work. She's lived in five countries. Her background spans anthropology, fashion, academia, and dance. She is a LinkedIn learning instructor, a frequent media expert, a gorgeous force, truly a Renaissance woman, and a one-of-a-kind creativity expert. She joins me today to spread her light and to help us uncover how to bring our own creative, professional, and personal gifts into the world. Pour yourself a large cup of coffee or a piping hot tea. We are getting ready for a major dose of inspiration. Welcome, Natalie. Thank you so much, Katie. It's great to be here. I'm very excited. I have immersed myself in your book and all of your wonderful writings. I've gotten to see some of your speaking engagements online, and I'm excited to explore creativity with you. Uh, I know that you define creativity as our ability to toggle between wonder and rigor, to solve problems, write, and produce novel value, what some people call innovation. You wrote an entire book on how we can cultivate creativity. We're going to get into some of those ideas in a minute. But first, I would love it if you could help us define wonder. Well, I think about wonder as audacity, dreaming, really big blue sky dreaming, as well as the ability to be able to sit in awe and to pause. And I remind people that it's really hard to wonder when you're going 80 miles an hour. Wonder is not woo-woo. It's actually something that some very smart people throughout time have spent a lot of time uh, thinking about and investing in. And the more I've researched wonder, the more I realized that if you want to become wiser and build your body of knowledge, you've got to design space in your life and time in your life to sit in awe, to be more curious, to be more audacious, to, to pause. Um, so Socrates, for example, said that wisdom begins in wonder. And the Jewish theologian and civil rights activist Abraham Heschel wrote that it's um, wonder, not doubt, which is the root of all knowledge. So that's what I mean when I say a lot of smart people have, have paid a lot of attention to wonder. Yeah, it's such a it's such a beautiful word. And thank you for helping, um, you know, describe it and define it for us. You know, in, in our culture, I think it tends to prioritize, you know, rigor over wonder. I think rigor requires less of an explanation. I know you as a coach help companies learn to prioritize uh, wonder and space for innovation and uh you know, but in our own lives, we are our own HR department. You know, we set mm-hmm. the agendas for how we're focusing our energy and our time. If somebody's thinking to themselves, I want to create space for wonder in my own life, you, what are some of your recommendations for uh, incorporating this in our day to day? Well, and first, just to clarify, I'm, I'm not a coach, I'm an advisor to a lot of leader, executive leadership teams and companies, but I'm I, okay, thank you. I just want to clarify that. But in our personal lives, what, one of the best ways to cultivate wonder and, and creativity more generally is to be what I call a clumsy student of, of anything. <laughs> uh, when you are not the smartest person in the room and you put yourself into student mode, it really helps you to 
be in awe of the of the of the little things in your life to be to humble yourself and to really build the curiosity that is that is fundamental to wonder. So, for example, I did something this summer that I have never done before, and I'm now hooked. Um, I'm a swimmer. I swim. I'm, I've never swam competitively, and I and I really cultivated my skills as a swimmer as a as a young adult. And a friend of mine last summer tweet uh, texted me about this program called Swim Trek. It's an English company, and they design swimming holidays around the world. And she said, "You you got to try this because she 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 and I uh, were on a work project together once in Northern California, where pool culture is the norm. And we discovered about ourselves. We both love to swim. So I fast forward went to Crete in Greece in July and spent a week uh, doing open water swimming, which I've never done before. I mean, I've I've swum in you know, it's calm bays a little bit here and there, but I've never, you know, sw- swam 3K a day, which is what we did. We were doing 3K to 4K a day. And it was the most marvelous. And I mean that in terms of the true meaning of the word marvelous. It was it was a marvelous experience. It was total immersion. I learned so much about myself. I learned so much about nature and the beauty of being uh really in rhythm with water and the sea and connecting with other people with whom I'd never met before. And I was so full of gratitude every single day that I was swimming in these turquoise green waters in Southern Crete and doing something that I didn't know if I could do. And real, just a funny story uh, before I, I I put a bow on this part of our conversation. I love this. I love this conversation. Keep going. <laughs> the first day so I, I went with a friend of mine from ballroom. The, the other area where I'm a comedy student is ballroom dance. And I convinced my friend Tori to come do this with me. And Tori is a does scuba diving. So I figured she'd be open to it. And she was. And our plane was from Athens to, to Crete was late. So we arrived a little later than the rest of the group. And we got to the part of the introductions where our guides asked us to put on our swimming costumes because they're English. <laughs> they were gonna. They said for us to have a go at it, and they were going to just, you know, just swim before we had cocktails and dinner for the first night. So it's around five o'clock. We put on our swimming costumes. We were staying in this tiny little village, which is only accessible by boat or hiking. So it's this tiny little village called Lutro, which is only accessible by boat or by hiking. And we walk down to the Pebble Beach area. There's a, there's different families and tourists staying. And they ask us to swim out about 50 yards and to do, excuse me, and to swim three loops around two buoys that are about, I guess they're they're about 50 yards apart, maybe 100 yards apart. And um, everyone dives into the water and I start to swim and I panic. I don't have my breathing cadence. I'm gasping for breath. Everyone seems to be faster than me. I go on my back a couple of times just to calm myself down. I do the first loop and everyone is now like way ahead of me. And I'm just panicking. And I and I yell out to one of the guys. I said, I, I'm losing my breath. I can't, I can't breathe out my left side. I usually can. She was like, oh, don't worry. I can only breathe out the right side of my, of my face. And she, now this woman has swum the English channel. So <laughs> I was like, okay. So I try again. I do a second loop again. 
I'm not in the right rhythm. I'm gasping for air. Everything is awry. And I decide, okay, I'm just going to get out the water. And I don't do the third loop. So I'm standing at the shoreline, totally dilapidated, dripping water, very downcast thinking. So my inner voice is saying, I should have never come. This was a bad idea. I'm going to drown. I'm the slowest person in the group. Why did I ever do this? Like those are literally the thoughts that are racing through my head. Everyone else finishes the third loop and they're all cheering. It's like, that was great. That was so refreshing, wasn't it? And I was like, yeah, that was, that was great. I looked down at my feet and I hone in on a pebble that's the shape. And I'm not kidding you. It's the shape of a heart. And I bend down and I pick it up. And I say to one of the women, her name is Andrea. I said, oh my gosh, look at this pebble. It's the shape of a heart. She's like, lovely. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> you know, she's from Cambridge. And I said, this must be a good sign. I'm really hoping it's a great sign. So I talked to my husband that night. He's like, how's it going? I'm like, oh, it's fine. But I'm like, really like, I've got to, I've got to do the last one every day. This is horrible. But I get over myself. I have a good night rest. I get up in the morning. And they announced the groups, the teams, and they decided to put me and another woman in the slowest group. And the groups are divided by the color of our swimming caps. So the fastest group is pink. The middle group is orange. My group, we have yellow swimming caps. So I'm like, okay, I'm the slow, we're, we're, the, we're the slow group. It's fine. It's fine. So we get on the big boat. The guys are in smaller boats and we are going out to our first trek of the first full day. And I have a great time and I'm just swimming the way I swim and it's, and it's beautiful. And we have lunch, like a two hour lunch. And then in the afternoon we swim some more, but I have to tell you that at different points during the swim with Heidi and me, Heidi was the other person in the yellow swim cap group. The guide kept saying, Natalie, you know, slow down a bit. You're getting a little bit ahead of Heidi. And so I would slow down. Fast forward to the end of the day. We're all back at the hotel, Nutro. We're having cocktails. And the guides say, right, well, we've had a chance to observe everybody for our first full day, and we've done a reorganization of the teams, of not the teams, excuse me, of the groups. And they rehand, they hand out, they reassort the teams. And they hand me a pink swimming cap. And I said, oh no, no, I, I'm the I'm in the slow group. This is this is pink. Pink is for the faster people. And they said, no, no, you're you're pink. <laughs> I said, uh. I think, how did I go from being the yellow swim cap, the slowest group to, to pink? And by the way, they just ended up resorting us to just pinks and oranges. Well, for the remainder of the week, one of the things I learned about myself was to get out of my head and into my body. And I also learned that the way I like to swim, which is long, extended, slow strokes, is exactly the way you should swim in open water. Open water is very different than swimming in lanes in a pool. And there literally was a moment when I realized, it's probably about day three, where I felt myself swimming to the rhythm of the sea. And it was just the most incredible feeling. And again, I, I stretched myself physically, I stretched myself mentally, emotionally, and I learned to be okay with not being in the lead and being the fastest one. It has nothing to do with speed. It's very much of a tortoise and hare fable sort of paradigm. And it's much more about, you know, attunement, attunement with your body, attunement with the sea and, um, you know, steady makes the race. So, so that's, that was my, 
summer holiday adventure in Crete. And then I, I went on and met my husband and, and our daughter in Istanbul for a week. And that was also really cool. Natalie, what a beautiful story. First of all, as somebody who is scared of both pools and open water, you, you've, you've inspired me. You described it so beautifully. I love that you um, were able to, you know, uh, sort of talk yourself into getting back into the water and learning that you were you were better than you thought and, and you sort of stopped listening to that inner voice, which might have stopped you in your tracks if you listened to the first time you, you got out of the out of the water and back onto the boat. We're heading into a break, but when we come back, I want to talk about this idea that sometimes we can push ourselves, you know, into things like experiencing wonder and creativity and that it's not something that is just accessible only to a few. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in your day, would you use it to head to yoga, take a nap, read a book, hang with a friend, maybe start a podcast? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. I know I do. I have three kids, two jobs, one puppy, and to be honest, a zillion things on my want to get to list. Here's what I've learned. The best way to squeeze something special into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, so it's convenient, flexible, and suited to your busy schedule. Getting started is so easy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. You can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash a certain age today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash a certain age. Natalie, we're back from the break. I know that you you just shared that um, you had to sort of push yourself back into the, into the water to, to swim and have this what ultimately wound up being an incredible experience. In your book, you you share that many people uh, sort of romanticize maybe, you know, not just success, but creativity as a sort of mystical, magical process that's only available to a few, you know, maybe only available to those people wearing the pink swimming caps. You know, walk <laughs> us through why this is not true and, and why it matters that we, rec- you know, that we recognize that uh, creativity is accessible to each and every one of us. Well, the reason why it's important that we recognize creativity is accessible to every one of us is that we actually are hardwired to be creative as humans. And we see that very easily when we look at small children, for example. If we reflect back onto our own childhoods, it was really easy for us to get lost in our thoughts, to make something out of nothing. Um, for example, my sister and I, when we were when we were little, we we could play for hours after a rain um, and making mud pies. Right? I mean, she typically was the chef and I was the sous chef, but still, <laughs> um, you know, we we were able to to make something out of nothing. And and while I define creativity as toggling between wonder and rigor to solve problems and generate value, a, a more common way to think about creativity is the juxtaposition of elements, ideas, products, stuff that people previously had never thought to put together. It's all about the remix and the mashup. So the challenge is that it's really about the way we've been educated. We've been educated in a way to value more the solution and the answer versus the process. And so that's why so many of us feel like, believe that we are not creative, but it's really a matter of investing in making the decision to 
commit to, again, making time and space for wonder, but also for rigor. Rigor is not something that pit people like to associate with creativity. In fact, people think that creativity is, yeah, it's doing whatever you feel like. And that's only part of the story of creativity. Creativity requires a tremendous amount of rigor. Uh, the, the awesome American dancer and choreographer Twyla Tharp famously wrote that before you can think out of the box, you must start with a box. You must know the rules. So before I could really relax into the water of the Sea of Crete, I had to get back into the technique of breath while you're swimming. I had to get back and learn all the tips from our guides about extending from the torso all the way out to the arm tip and a bit of the torque that the torso has to make. And that actually makes your swimming more efficient. So I would go back and forth between reminding myself of the technique, the rigor to enhance the wondrous experience I could have when I would get out of my mind and into my body. And rigor is about focus and discipline and time on task. What I, I find is that sometimes we think we're being rigorous, but we're actually being a bit rigid. And rigidity and rigor are really different things. I love that um, distinction. And your book is full of so many wonderful examples of, 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 of people who are toggling back and forth between wonder and rigor. One of the examples that I really love was a woman named Celine, who's a perfumer. I would love yes. it if you could share with our listeners, because I think this really illustrates the concept so beautifully. Why is the creation of perfume uh, a process that really marries wonder and rigor so beautifully? So Celine Barrel is French. She's from the preeminent, preeminent uh, town of perfume in the heart of France, in southern France, called Grasse. And she is a nose. She's a perfumer who is at IFF, the International Flavors and Fragrances Company. And I visited her at her place of work after meeting her at a really cool salon experience, not hair salon, but it was kind of like an ideas salon. And I was really intrigued by her because of the way she works and the way she thinks about the role of scent in our lives. She at one point said, my superpower is my ability to make real what no longer exists. And I thought, oh, that's, that's, that's is why I love, I, I mean, I love perfume. Um, it's because when, when we smell something that reminds us of a time, a person, a space that we no longer can access, man, that smell brings it all back. So Old Spice aftershave will always, always remind me of my dad. And the smell of baking bread and rolls reminds me of my grandmother and my aunts. And Jergens lotion, uh, the original um, almond cherry scent reminds me of being a kid. So scent is a, an element of our senses that we really underutilize and tap. And the way Celine thinks about her practice as creative is that she says that I merge chemistry, which is the rigor part, and intuition, which is the wonder part. And that marriage of chemistry and intuition is something that she is able to go back and forth with every single day in her work. It was I love the way you described it, and I love the way she described it in the book too. It was just so evocative, and I, and I totally agree. I feel like the scent is such a powerful um, 
sort of memory inducer. It really, it, it, it puts you in something. And it, it's a wonderful example because I, you know, when you think of creativity, maybe not, not you because you've written an entire book of it, but when I sometimes think of creativity, I, look, I think of it as sort of the surface level of like making art or or, or mm-hmm. um, having a conversation or creating a story. But there is creativity in, imbued in so many aspects of our life and our work that we sometimes don't even think of it in that way. Right. Um, you know, and that's one of the things I think that your book really surfaces, uh, at least it did for me, and which which I so enjoyed. Um, Thank you. Natalie, I want to switch gears for a m- moment because, you know, we're talking about creativity today um, in, in new ways. You know, it's hard to think about human creativity without examining the role of AI. I know that you have, uh, you have thinking on this. You've written about it. We have things like Chat GPT, which are creating words and articles and books. We have AI imagery, creating everything from art to LinkedIn headshots. I actually worked with a client recently who who upgraded her headshot with an AI headshot. You wrote an article recently about AI for the magazine Fast Company, um, which turned into a workshop that you delivered at the Fast Company Innovation Festival recently. It's called the AI We Didn't See Coming. I would love for you to share a little bit with our listeners what you see as the role of human creativity in a world where AI is on the rise. Well, I think that the ubiquity of technology is something that, A, we have to accept. The train has left the station. But I don't have a utopian view of it. But I also don't have a dystopian view of it. I have what my friend Galit Ariel, who is a a, she calls herself sometimes a digital hippie. She's an expert in augmented reality. She calls it a heterotopian perspective that there's some good and there's some bad. And the way I think we could think about AI as it relates to creativity is that AI should not be the pilot, but it definitely can be the co-pilot and it can spark our curiosity. If you've played around a little bit with chat GPT, then you're well aware that it is only as good as the questions you're able to frame. And even the coders and computer scientists who are designing the algorithms, they still must be able to ask a better question, right? They they need to be able to be really good observers of society. The fact that we now have job categories and job titles uh, of, of people who are prompt engineers. Th- these are jobs that didn't even exist five years ago. These are people who must be really good at asking questions. So in the article that I wrote for Fast Company, I was really helping people to understand that this is a time when now more than ever, our curiosity can be piqued. The need to be able to be improvisational and experimental is stronger than ever. And what my next book is going to be exploring is this idea that what if our most productive selves are not when we're churning through email or on Zoom or at the whiteboard, but when we step away from that technology and we engage in what I call motor activity, um, MTR, activity that relates to movement, thought, and rest. Because in a time where technology is everywhere and it's getting more and more embedded in our lives and in our work, the opportunity is to lean into technology that amplifies what makes us uniquely human, to do work that makes us uniquely human. Because basic tasks are being taken over, right? I mean, I, I love a good AI app. I love that I can 
dictate a, a text into my iPhone. Oh, me too. I, listen, right? if, I, if I can't find my readers, I am voice texting all sorts of insanity to yeah. my, my kids and children because I love that, That's great. And it, and, it, and it offloads cognitive load in our brains so that our brains can do other things. And there, it, the, the, the beauty of in the idealized optimal state from my perspective and what I'm exploring in my next book is to really, what is the work we can do that can tap into our default motor network, our default mode, excuse me, our default mode network in our brain, right? Which is where the best synchronicity of juicy ideas become juxtaposed and our imagination really expands. That's the opportunity is that we really optimize our imagination because technology, apps, robotics, automation are going to be doing the basic tasks. So what's left? There's so much more that's left. And I'm going to get the statistic wrong, but I think neuroscientists say that we're only probably optimizing, maximizing like 20% of our brain's capability. So there's there's a lot to more to explore creatively in the midst of all this technology. Yeah, I, I absolutely love that, and 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 the, the the notion of sort of offloading some of the work that can be done with AI to free up, you know, higher level thinking or imagination or or you know, create space for wonder as you as you described. Um, I. I have never heard the term prompt engineer before, and you better believe I'm going to Google that because that's so interesting. One of the chapters. Yeah, I mean, what... <laughs> if, you go to, if you go to a website like Upwork, they are they have job offerings for prompt engineers. I, yeah. I absolutely love that. And I'm, I'm thinking the prompt engineers are probably really good at, at, at something that you describe in your book as asking a better frigging question, uh, yes. which is one of the hilarious titles that you have. You know, like we need to be asking better frigging questions. And you know, you, you shared earlier that perhaps the way we've been educated or the way the society, you know, prioritizes solutions over over wonder kind of inhibits our ability to ask better questions. You know, for a listener who's thinking, you know, I want to be able to do that. What would be a prompt that we might consider in our own lives to help us get to better questions? Well, I also want to just contextualize the reason why I talk about curiosity and questions so much is because I realized that when I was developing the Wonder Rigor framework, it wasn't enough for me to tell people to go ahead, toggle between wonder and rigor to solve problems, off you go, you know, you're creative. How do you do that in a consistent and sustainable way? And that's when I developed the three eyes. The three eyes are how you can consistently toggle between wonder and rigor. And they include inquiry, which is curiosity, improvisation, which is about being experimental, and intuition, which is following the heart, the nudge, saying yes and. But get, but focusing in more on your question around inquiry and how we can get better asking questions. Part part of the skill of getting better at asking questions is to build the confidence to ask questions because so many of us have been question shamed at some point in our career, in our educational experiences, in our upbringing. We got a message that uh, don't ask too many questions or, you know, you, sure. you dare to raise your hand and you, maybe you received with giggles or even worse, you were ignored. That's even worse. And you quickly get this, this message that uh, I better not ask too many questions. It's just about, I only will raise my hand when I'm a hundred percent certain that I have the right thought or idea, which is really not the point if we want to truly be able to innovate because innovation is a really messy process. 
And it requires us to learn from mistakes. It requires us to probe more with questions. So one of the things that we can do is to is to educate ourselves about questions. For example, I love the work of Warren Berger, who calls himself a questionologist, and he's the author of a great book called A More Beautiful Question. He believes, and I agree with him, that we need to actually teach people how to ask questions. We assume people just know how to ask questions. And a great place to start, from my view, is to understand there's what I call a taxonomy of questions. So there are what we can think of as divergent questions, questions such as why and what if, and I wonder, and then there are convergent questions, questions that help us to get a bit more tactical. And those are questions like what, when, who? <laughs> and uh, then there are hybrid questions. Hybrid, the hybrid questions are how. How can be a convergent question, like how are we gonna get this done? Can also be a divergent question, like how might we? So even understanding the distinctions between questions is a great place to start to begin to practice. And so when I am hired to advise teams, executive leadership teams, sometimes we just go into redesigning meetings so that they are incorporating questions in much more interesting ways and you're normalizing asking questions. But then again, on a personal level, a great way to get better at asking questions is to become a clumsy student because I got to tell you, as I have studied ballroom more intentionally over the past three years, there's no shame to my game because I don't know what I'm doing and I have to learn from people who are better than me, other students. I learn from my instructors, my teachers. And what begins to happen is you, is that you rewire the neurosynapses in your brain. The more you ask questions, the more you're not shy about improvising on something, about following that nudge, you are sparking those neurosynapses in your brain so, so that when you return to the work at hand, your everyday work, you've normalized it. You're a lot more comfortable asking questions and following your intuition and being more improvisational. Yeah, I absolutely love that. You're practiced in that. And, and something you said, Natalie, sparked a thought on me too, to be a clumsy student, but to also be, you know, maybe um, a clumsier work in progress teacher. Because, yes. you know, I'm a parent of three children. I, I have, uh, you know, people often ask me now that I'm like a podcaster for information. And so I've been trying to to share what I know and, 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 and in, you know, within the context of only what I know. But it, it, it forces you to think through what it is that you believe to be true or what you believe to be useful mm -hmm. or, or to, to figure out, you know, uh, how you want to uh, sort of share this information. So I think... Being a student and a teacher is something that, that probably helps us with, you know, to ask better questions and get better information. Now, I do want to switch gears for a minute and ask you about something and kind of like take this conversation in a totally new direction. I know that you recently celebrated a birthday, and I know mm -hmm. this because we're connected on Instagram. And I saw something you shared, and I paid attention because we both turned 54 around the same time, just within a few days of each other. And on your birthday, you shared an Instagram uh, post that I absolutely loved. And you said, quote, I am becoming the woman of my dreams. And yes. I so adored this notion. Um, it reminded me a little bit of Diane von Furstenberg, who says, you know, becoming the woman you were meant to be. I think this notion is so beautiful. And I'm just curious. I would love to know, what does this look like for you? What does it mean to be the woman of your dreams? Well, whenever I start to feel a little less confident about my ideas, about my work, about a choice that I have to make. 
I re recall, I recall a photograph, one of those, you know, those school pictures where your mom picked out a nicer dress for you, made sure your hair was combed prettily. <laughs> yes. Ready for that public school picture. Yes, we have those well, too. My, my second grade picture is one that I just adore of myself because I was wearing this crochet, I remember it was like a crochet knit dress, which I thought was so pretty. I only wore it on special occasions. My hair was in two French braids and I had on this little necklace with a pendant that had my birth date on it. And I was so happy. I felt so, I, mean, I would not have used those words back then, but confident, you know, I was, I was just happy and pleased with myself. And that's the self that I hold on to, which I really believe if we think of like ourselves as those Russian dolls, that girl with that bliss and that self-contentment is, is still inside of me. And so what that girl would want for herself is joy, is being able to be helpful to people, is being able to use her brain well. I mean, I loved reading and still love to read um, when I was a girl. I, I loved how I could go into different worlds and different time periods and different perspectives start out with my my love of fairy tales that graduate into Nancy Drew novel stories um on onward to like Jane Austen stuff by high school love 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 fiction and so the woman of my dreams is a woman who is able to explore who's able to be happy with the smallest of moments and hopefully is helpful to people and so that is a work in progress, but I'm, I'm, I certainly am closer to it than I would have ever imagined. I would have never imagined 10 years ago that I would be an entrepreneur. I was still a professor at that time. At the time, that was my jam. That was great. That was working for me until it didn't anymore. So to be able to make that shift is, has just been an incredible gift. So fulfilling to the point where I, I was saying to different people a lot over the summer, it doesn't feel like work. I mean, I'm I'm working at it, but it's you you get to the state of flow where you lose the track of time and you really are enjoying so much the ability to have this convergence in my case of all the very different sorts of things I've done in my career, where now they all make sense. They're all converging into one kind of thread. So that's what I mean when I when I say I am becoming the woman of my dreams. I love that. I, what what role of, what role of any did aging play in this process? Um what role has aging played? Well, in, in the process I, of just sort um, of feeling like you know with the Russian dolls that you've returned to your yeah. core to your core. Well, you know, I actually wrote an essay. I was invited to write an essay for a really cool platform called 4050. And it's to celebrate women and aging in similar ways to what you do, Katie. And I wrote two years ago when I was 52, I wrote a, an essay called Why I Love Getting Older. And what I shared in that essay was that because I was such an awkward Black girl, I was such a nerd. I never felt comfortable in my own skin. I felt like I only looked good in a leotard and tights when I was 12 and 13. I was so skinny. I uh, had buck teeth. Uh, I, I went from being a tomboy to being terrified of boys and really nervous around them. Um, I was, I was a nice girl and I, I got along with everybody and I was a great athlete, good, good in school, all that stuff. But 
I just imagine when I was 15 years old, oh my gosh, this is only going to get better. It's got to get better. <laughs> and I imagine for some reason, my 40s, I don't know why I thought that when I was 15 years old, but I thought, I think that when I'm in my 40s, I'm finally going to have it together. Like I'm going to be happy with the way I look and I'm going to be confident and everything's just going to flow. And so I wrote this essay on my theory of each decade I've lived through so far and how sure enough in my 40s, I really began to come into my own and aging to me is really about acceptance. It's about accepting what you can no longer do as well. It's about accepting all the things you can do. Aging is about the gift of perspective. You know, the perspective I have now at age 54 that I didn't have at 44, that I certainly didn't have at age 14. And to me, it just gets better and better if you acknowledge the part of the aging process is acceptance, is, is, is that you can't do some of the things you used to be able to do, but there's so many other things that you now can do. I, I absolutely could not agree more, and I, I love the way you you phrase that. Aging is acceptance. I have I've had 156 conversations. You're the first person to say that. It's going to stick in my brain. I, I I so agree with it. It's like the double sided coin. You have to accept what's maybe hard and challenging, but but by by accepting who you are too, you just sort of are, are so free. And yes. there's so much joy and confidence and, um, I don't know, just sort of contentment um, in, 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 in who, who we are. I love that. Natalie, we're nearing the end of our time. I, I do want to close with a speed round because I always so enjoy uh, hearing people's responses to this. And it's kind of a high energy way to end. And I could talk to you forever. So this is just sort of a way of, of getting more from you before we, we part. <laughs> so this is one to two word answers. Um, are you ready? Let's do this thing. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, creativity requires wonder, and we've said that wonder requires time and space. What lifestyle hacker choice allows you to add space to your life? Sleep. Uh, I love that. Creativity also requires rigor, right? This choice app or hack provides rigor and structure for my days. The timer. Yes. <laughs> oh my gosh, my I find timer runs my runs my days. Mm -hmm. uh, you recommend nourishing creativity by choosing to be a clumsy student, a beginner. I know we talked about swimming, but what was another new thing that you've tried recently? I always go back to ballroom dance because I'm always learning something new in ballroom. Right now, I'm trying to really per not perfect. There's no such thing as perfection, but I'm trying to get much better at West Coast swing. So it's so fun. Uh, what is the next new thing you want to try? Hmm. Okay. I actually want to get better at attaching false eyelashes. Half false eyelashes. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm I am with I you. Speak, whenever I speak and give ketos, and I, it's such a treat to get my makeup done by professional makeup artists. I learned so much from them. And so many have tried to teach me how to apply. Oh my God, that's hysterical. I know. I love it. I love it. I love it because it makes such a difference. I, I don't it leave does. my. I don't leave my house without mascara. It's like the I'm not like a huge makeup person, but uh, you know something happened to my eyelashes in midlife. So it's like either mascara or or fake ones. Yeah. I totally get that. Um, all right, how about this one? Creativity is all around us. This creative thinker or artist always inspires me. Probably too many, right? 
There's too many. Um, Twyla Tharp, we've already mentioned. Oh gosh, um, Ava DuVernay, the filmmaker. Um, my dance teacher, Nadari, uh, who's full of rigor. <laughs> she has a lot of rigor. Um, uh, any athlete, yeah. Any professional athlete, absolutely. Well, it's, I think it's so wonderful to have more than one answer to this because it, that's what that gets, gives us like so much inspiration. Okay, this one might be easier. Finally, your one word answer to complete the sentence. As I age, I feel complete. Nice. Natalie, this has been such a pleasure. I so enjoyed this conversation. Before we say goodbye, how can our listeners uh, find you, follow your work, learn about your thinking, find your book? Well, thank you again, Katie, for having me on, on your podcast. This was such an awesome conversation. Listeners can go to my website, figure8thinking.com. It's the number eight. And they should download a free sample chapter of the Creativity Leap. They can join the EverWonder newsletter. I share tons of content in my newsletter. I also share a lot of content on LinkedIn so they could follow me on LinkedIn. And definitely connect with me on Instagram as well, at NatWNixon. Phenomenal. All of that is going into the show notes. Thank you, Natalie. This wraps A Certain Age, a show for women who are aging without apology. And before I say goodbye, a quick favor. I would love it if you could take five minutes to write an Apple podcast review. Do you feel more creative, inspired, or smarter after listening to today's show? Do you feel less alone, more connected to a tribe of amazing midlife women? If so, please take five minutes to rate or review the show over on Apple Podcasts. Reviews help the show grow. Special thanks to Michael Mancini, who composed and produced our theme music. See you next time. And until then, age boldly, beauties. 